Hey guys, my name is Ben Berman and welcome to the Starting It Up podcast where I interview all types of entrepreneurs uncovering actionable steps and inspiration that you can use to build your business, your side hustle, whatever it is that you're trying to create and live the life you've always wanted. On this episode, we talk with Kristen Terrell, the founder and COO at Catch, a rapidly growing fintech startup providing a way to handle taxes, retirement, time off, health insurance, and student loan refinancing all in one place. The relationship between employers and employees is changing. Multiple jobs at once, side hustles, and full-time freelancing mean more and more people aren't being served by existing models. This is where Catch comes into play. Catch was founded in 2017, participated in Y Combinator's Winter 2019 class, and has raised over $8 million to date. We discuss topics like the importance of market timing when launching a startup, the growing freelance and gig economy, what the future of personal finance looks like and the unique experience of navigating tech and fintech in particular as a female entrepreneur. Hope you all enjoy. Here it goes. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking with Kristen, who is the founder and COO at Catch. They're a technology startup combining savings, investment, and insurance for those without access to employer benefits. Kristen, this is kind of the perfect time to be creating a company like this with the drastic changes going on in the economy. I just want to hand it over to you. Tell us a little bit more about your story, how you got to this point, and what made you in particular want to start Catch? Yeah, I think a lot of people talk about how the really successful startups have to have both a great idea and the right time in the market. So we certainly hope that the the timing in the market is right. But um, Catch is basically a portable benefits platform built for the future of work. We have set out to help the 80 million people who don't have access to employer-sponsored benefits set up and manage things like tax withholding, retirement, and health insurance. Um, And we talk about this market in a sort of broad way because it covers a lot of different types of people, right? So we're talking about freelancers, contractors, gig workers, part-time, any sort of non-traditional work you can think of. Um, A lot of people who may even be, you know, working at a job that just doesn't offer benefits. A lot of startup employees, for example, don't get retirement or health insurance from their employers. Um, And so all of those people um, are the people who we've set out to serve. And this came from sort of a couple different unifying principles. One is that my co-founder, Andrew, is uh, or was a freelancer. I guess now he's got a full-time job, but he was a freelancer and he was working with a couple different clients on engineering and design work. And he was so frustrated at how difficult it was to manage these different tools, mostly because for things like taxes and health insurance, there really aren't good tools. And he's like, why is everything that's fun, like entertainment (laughs) and travel, like really easy and beautiful and like a joy to engage with? And then everything that you have to do sort of like traditional adulting is really unpleasant and it doesn't have to be right. There are principles that we can use to make that experience better. And so he sort of set out with this initial idea to make a a prototype for something that he wanted to exist. Um, I guess sort of your classic founder story of of someone saying like, I I have a problem and I want to solve it. Um, He brought me in actually as a co-founder because of my FinTech background. So I've been in FinTech for about five or six years, um, working on a number of different consumer products, focusing on savings investment, Um, Insurance was a little bit new to me at the time, but basically to execute on everything that he wanted to do um, was really difficult. Like building a beautiful front end is is important and is certainly not um, taken for granted, but it's something that if you don't have the ability underneath that front end to actually do the stuff, 
your platform is very unlikely to actually add a lot of value. So I joined the team um, and sort of brought in this, this mission-driven fintech background focusing on the underserved and really just trying to build something that actually allowed people to build their own financial stability. So we sort of unified that idea and realized that there was this huge gap in the market because there are a large and growing number of people who don't have an appropriate safety net from an employer. Yeah, I think it's, it's very similar to like the traditional startup story where, you know, a founder has this great idea and they need to execute it and, and make it happen. And they go out and they find a co-founder who has the skill set that they don't have. And then together you can actually, you know, bring this idea to life and, and, and create a successful business. Um, so one of the things I'm curious about is why fintech? Uh, you know, like you had said, you spent the majority of your career in fintech. Like what about that uh, particular um, niche? Uh, within the tech sector has attracted you so much? Yeah, I think there are a couple different things. And this answer has probably changed for me over time. So if you were to ask me in another six months or, or year, I'd probably have a different answer. But I think there's a lot about fintech that's really exciting. From the sort of user perspective, I think fintech has the ability to fundamentally change outcomes. Um, and by that, I mean like People can build wealth with the right tools. People who we thought were, you know, quote unquote, too poor or just like not capable. We can build technology that actually allows them to be safer and more secure. Um, that's really exciting. Like that's, that's yeah. something that I think like has the power to make a lot of change outside of just tech in particular. Um, and so that was sort of the, the initial thing that brought me in is that our, our financial system has been built for the wealthy. And I feel like I'm going to like sound like Elizabeth Warren right now, but <laughs> the system has been built for the wealthy. And we are now at a point where technology is so cheap that we can distribute to the mass market and we can use some of the things that we've learned in the early days of fintech to distribute technology to everyone who maybe like we don't need people to earn $100,000 a year to be profitable for us anymore, right? We can deliver these tools in a much cheaper way. And I think that's that's a really exciting um, part of fintech from the impact side. I think the other thing now that I've sort of been in it for a while that's really appealing from a true venture-backed startup point of view is that fintech is a really exciting business model. And this, in my mind, by the way, is how I sort of differentiate fintech from sort of more traditional tech is that what is your business model? If your business model is SaaS, you're not a fintech. If you just like charge people a monthly fee to use your platform and you have like information about finance there, you're not truly a fintech company, right? Fintech company to me implies that you have a fintech business model, which means that you earn money on money or you're doing brokerage or investment uh, or right? Like it's how you earn money. Like we don't charge a monthly subscription fee right now. We may have some premium version in the future, but right now our product is free to access for anybody, but our revenue comes from our ability to build balances just in the same way that it does for banks. And that's in my mind, sort of the thing that like makes a consumer fintech, like truly a fintech. There's sort of a whole layer of other yeah. fintechs that serve big businesses in Wall Street, but sort of for the purposes of consumer fintech, we're really talking about like, how do you make money? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's a really interesting point. I had always traditionally like picture fin fintech, everything just, you know, financial, like mix of technology, kind of like in a startup that way. But thinking about it, you know, from more traditional route of actual finance where you're only making money when you, like you, the customer uh, or the user is making money is, is actually really interesting. Um, and it makes you think about a company like, uh, like Robinhood or something, which doesn't necessarily um, take, you know, money from the consumer per trade, but it does charge a, uh, a fee, 
um, on like a monthly basis and like has some other ways of making money. So it's, it's really interesting. And there's a lot of different avenues there. Um, you know, just to dive a little bit deeper into, into how you actually make money. So I signed up for an account, just curious, like how does catch make money? Like, do you take a certain percentage of, um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you just yeah. answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we earn money in a couple different ways based on the products that you're using. So that was one of the real things that was really important to us is that we weren't just like charging for access. Um, I, I went to a talk from one of the early employees at Spotify and he was like, one of the things that we learned is that people never pay for access. They only pay for convenience, right? So that's something that we really took to heart in terms of thinking about how we how we build and how we charge. We didn't want to just say like, Oh, pay us $30 a month and you can like get these things. I think a lot of companies yep. try that because they they're sort of rushing for that early revenue for ARR for investment, but it's not necessarily the appropriate thing to do when you're a FinTech. Right. And so for us, for the, um, the banking services that we do, so tax withholding, setting aside money for time off, really anything that has to do with liquid balances, we earn on the float. Right. I think that's a fairly classic fintech model where it's yep. sort of like we're paid money for the money that's held in the accounts that we that we own. Um, for the retirement portion, we charge an annual basis point fee, just like any robo advisor would. So that's money that the consumer actually does pay us, but it comes out of their retirement savings. So just like if you use Betterment or Wealthfront, there's like, I think Betterment and Wealthfront are like 35 basis points. We're at 50 right now. Um, certainly not the lowest, but I think there are a bunch of different players who are also sort of at the 100 basis point. So we've tried to make it affordable in the, in the realm of robos, um, but just something that allows people to um, not really have to think about the cost because it just sort of happens in an automated way as you're saving for retirement. And then for health insurance, that's sort of the, the odd man out, but also where there exists a lot of opportunity in the future is that anything that has to do with insurance, we serve as a broker. And so being a broker, we earn a, a per plan commission on a monthly basis. So that's where you get into more of a traditional tech business model because you have sort of that monthly recurring revenue that comes in sort of like a 10 to $12 a month range, right? Um, and that's what comes from health insurance. So our business model is a little bit complicated, but the reason it sits that way is because we wanted people to only have to, you know, be charged for the things they're using. And by the way, health insurance is free for the consumer. That commission comes from the insurance carrier. So like Blue Cross, for example, would pay yeah. us money to sell their plans. So the consumer doesn't have to pay anything for that. Yeah. So that's, that's how we make money. <laughs> Very cool. So there's definitely multi-layer there. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, similar to, you know, a combination of like a, a lot of um, different fintech companies are doing. So you have like the, where you're holding the money, you have like the kind of more um, of the actual investment side. And then you have, you know, the, the area where you're actually connecting the the users with different uh, insurance programs and mm -hmm. and i think like you said people pay for convenience so instead of using three different apps um for or for three different platforms for all those things which right now is is actually what i'm doing um just because mm -hmm. you know you have uh especially if it's goes through your employer and there's like things that you you don't really have much of an option um so you have to like go to the three different sections to, to find yeah. all these things um yeah, and I, I think that's a really important point because I think, you know, talking about the initial story is really important, but for where catch is going, you're really hitting on what the key insight is, which is that the employer-sponsored benefits model does not fit with our workforce today. And it's to say that, like, even if you have an employer who provides you some benefits, maybe they don't provide you with all of them, or maybe you've changed jobs a couple times. Like, we shouldn't have people who have four 401ks by the time they're 30, yeah. right? <laughs> like, rolling those over every time, changing health insurance every time you change jobs. Like, our, our workforce is much more fluid, even outside of just the freelance 
freelancing class. And so we see a world in which the entire benefits model has flipped and is sort of centered on the individual where eventually you would be able to set up your 401k, your health insurance account, and it would belong to you and your employer would contribute to that. It removes a ton of inefficiency in the benefits market on the B2B side, and it gives you the opportunity to get the products that you actually want. Yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, I'm newly out of school under two years, but I've already like switched. I, I've, I've switched a job one time and yep. I've noticed, you know, it's it's a whole restarting of the entire process. Completely. Um, and it's just kind of a headache because obviously you have and, and the worst thing is like and this is kind of common. People are working at companies, especially startups and, and smaller companies for very long periods of time. So you just carry over little by little, like a lot of different stuff and you have to piece it together to actually uh, have something that's, you know, kind of substantial in a way. And yeah, and, and one of the really cool things that I, that I saw about Catch was that, you know, everyone's talking about like, you know, getting a side gig, you know, you need to have like a side gig in, in 2019 and stuff. Uh, and you have an option for most people are like fully employed and then you know a lot of those people do something on the side and and combining that is really uh, efficient just because i think the tax stuff in regards to uh you know 1099 and 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 side money income is is very complicated um you know you have to estimate how much money you're going to pay later sometimes you have to pay like quarterly it it's it, a lot of it doesn't particularly make much sense um but it's it's good that you know you don't want people doing a lot of that work um, and then never properly paying like any tax on it just because it might lead to problems in the future and stuff. Right. But yeah, exactly. So so that avenue I thought was super interesting um, because I haven't really seen that anywhere else. Yeah. And I think that that really matches with how we see the market. Like a lot of people want to bucket us really early on, especially when you're at the seed stage. They're like, oh, you're for freelancers or you're for gig workers. And, you know, absolutely, those people are our users, but the story is a lot more complex than that because of exactly what you're talking about, people adding in a side gig, this whole identity question. Like we have people who will tell us, I'm a freelance writer, but then when you look at their income, they're earning income on the side from Uber and Lyft to sort of fill gaps, right? And I think that's a much more common experience. And there's nothing that's really addressed you as an individual and your employment as the portfolio. Right. Our benefits to date have been focused on like the employer as a single entity that like you basically come in and you sit at a desk and they provide these things to you. Like it's very patriarchal. Right. And and again, there's a lot of benefit that came from this system because we did figure out how to get people to save for retirement. And we did have more people covered by health insurance than if companies hadn't been providing it. But you just see that the workforce has changed and technology is making it change even more. Like it's just changing faster and faster. Remote work like there's the digital nomad class of people, right? Yeah. There's all these different types of people and they shouldn't have to become experts in things like taxes to be able to live and work the way they want. And that's, that's really what we're going for is you don't need to be the expert to make sure that you're covered on these really fundamental things. Awesome. So I, I want to, you know, talk a little bit more about um, you, you guys had recently been in, in Y Combinator's winter class. Talk a little bit about your experience there. Why do you think, you know, Y Combinator is seen as this accelerator where so many successful companies uh, come out of? Like, what was the <laughs> the biggest takeaways that you had from that experience? Um, just to hand it over to you to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, y Combinator has a, a bit of a like mystique about it, right? Like there is this, like, if you look at their portfolio, there are some like the biggest and most successful startups yeah. you've ever <laughs> seen started there. Um, that's a, 
it's an unusual thing. I mean, I think they've done a they've done a really good job at sourcing. One, I th- I don't know how they did it. And to be fair, they've invested in a lot of companies, and so there are a lot of companies that you don't even see on their portfolio because they're out of business. So part yeah. of it is a numbers game, right? Like they invest in a lot of companies, um, and some of them are bound to be successful. But I do think they have a really excellent track record of of identifying founders, and and you know I think they they are fairly transparent about their methodology and what they look for, and they look for people who are solving a real problem and founders who they think are like adaptable and able to, to learn and grow. And so I think for us, we were, I bet this is what everyone probably says about their Y Combinator experience. We were a non-traditional Y Combinator company. Um, yeah. I think everyone probably thinks that, which I guess is, is something to say, but you know, we, we weren't just like founders who had an idea who went to live in California and code all day long. We already had an initial product in market. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that fintech in particular, the program is 10 weeks long. If you haven't launched before you get to Y Combinator for fintech, you just like, you won't get there by demo day because, you know, the Y Combinator Mm -hmm. model was built around traditional tech where it's like software and you can run a bunch of sprints and you can run three day sprints for 10 weeks. And then by the end of that, like you're able to actually put something out. But for fintech, we're dependent on this regulatory system where there are banks involved and there are like contracts involved and there's compliance involved and all of that stuff just like can't be done super quickly. Um, So we were a little bit further along. We had a team, I think we were at 10 or 12 people by the time we got into Y Combinator. Um, And we, we made the decision because we think that their, their brand is impeccable and their network is impeccable. And the third reason is that they really help drive urgency for fundraising. So all of those things made it a really good decision for us. I know a lot of people are like, oh, why would you give up 7% of your company? Honestly, it was 100% worth it for us. It may not be for everyone, but it definitely was worth it for us because we were first-time founders who were trying to fundraise and we're in Boston, right? And the Boston VC ecosystem is much smaller than San Francisco's, just numbers-wise. And so trying to raise when you're not even from the city is, is really tough. And so we found that like getting access to Y Combinator gave us excellent coverage to get introductions to VCs and like move the fundraising conversations forward. Also, their partners are like the smartest people I've ever met. Like all of the Y Combinator partners are exceptionally intelligent. I don't know why they all choose to work at Y Combinator than like a traditional VC, it seems like it's way more work. Like they work really, yeah. really hard, um, but they're amazing. And I think that like there's, there's coaching that goes on. There's sort of office hours. You get to know some of your batchmates. But I think for us, a lot of the value comes from the extended network over time and the ability to get a fundraise done very quickly because of the YC brand. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that was uh, super helpful to know. I feel like everyone listening who might have you know, already not wanted to, uh, you know, go through YC probably does now. Um, <laughs> just because, uh, it seems like, you know, for, for your case in particular, it was just such a, such a great benefit. And I'm looking at, um, some of the, the companies that had, uh, uh, the funds that had invested in, in your company and you have, you know, the urban innovation fund, coastal ventures, just really big names. Um, and, and it's kind of funny cause a lot of people, um, talk about how, you know, a company goes through Y Combinator and now they have this ridiculous valuation, um, which a lot of people like are like rolling their eyes at, but at the same time, they still uh, are getting that investment. So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of funny to think about it that way. <laughs> it is. You get, you get both sides of it. I think we, you know, we had a number of fundraising conversations before we got into Y Combinator. And I think that, again, as first time founders who had never had a successful exit, Neither my co-founder or I worked at Google. Neither of us went to Stanford. I think for us, the credentialing was really important to have someone say, like, we validate you. 
Um, and again, like, is that the way the world should work? Maybe not, but like yeah. it does, right? <laughs> and VCs look for signals, right? Like, did you go to Stanford? Did you, you know, like, have you done these things? And we hadn't. And so we knew we were onto something, but for us, that credential was really important. And again, if you, if you worked at Google and you went to MIT, like you, you, you may not need that credential from Y Combinator, but for us, it was really helpful. And then the other thing I'll just say about Y Combinator to sort of sing their praises a little bit more is that like, <laughs> we, we often talk about how their advice made first time founders, second time founders. Right, because they've seen so many different things, you get the benefit of that like long history of like watching startups fail. And one of the things they said to us on the first day was, if you guys are gonna fail, make sure you fail in a new and interesting way. Please don't come to Y Combinator and fail in the same way that we've just told you 40 other startups failed. <laughs> and so I think that's like a really interesting mindset of like it it causes you to think more about taking risk differently and not just like doing the same thing, right? Um, and so it sort of put us, it sort of launched us forward in our ability to, f to be founders who had that sort of back knowledge when we as first time founders wouldn't have necessarily had that. Yeah, for sure. I think like one of the classic examples that, that I think of in particular and, uh, is, is Airbnb, mm -hmm. um, where I'm sure like everyone already knows the story, but they, they'd went through Y Combinator and, um, you know, the partners in particular, Paul Graham had essentially told them like do a couple of these things. One of them was like, do stuff that doesn't scale, you know, go and start taking photos of um, all of the actual listings. And then they did that. They were like, you know, going to meetings and they're, they're um, just doing a bunch of stuff that like didn't seem that it would be effective in the long run. But the fact that they had done it just, you know, propelled them forward so much and, and the learnings that they got from there right. um, was pretty critical to creating, you know, this multi-billion dollar company, which which everyone knows now. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, I know a lot of the time people talk about like, oh, you know, I have to think non-traditionally, but it's difficult for everyone to think that way because kind of by definition, if everyone is thinking, <laughs> right. you know, a different way, then they're all, you know, not really thinking a different way. Um, but it seems like you know that's that's the kind of uh, advice and and uh, and help that you got there, which is uh, really cool to see. Mm -hmm. So you know you've raised uh, quite a bit of money, over eight million dollars. Uh, I looked at your uh, your website, and you guys are hiring a bunch. What are the like, direct next steps um, for for Catch? And then maybe more down the line, a few years later, what are you looking to to have? Um, like is the play essentially to get as many people in like the new gig economy slash people who might be employed and doing side hustles on the platform as possible? Um, or are you kind of taking a different route? So yeah, in the immediate term, um, the answer is, is always growth, right? Like in the short term, it's, it's finding enough users and, and people who want this product to use it. I think you, you sort of early on hit on one of the key value propositions that we see, which is the ability to do all of these things in one place. Like, we really have put three startups inside of one startup, right? Like yeah. there are lots of companies that will just do health insurance and that will just do a robo advisor and that will just do, you know, banking and ACH services. And I think that doing all of those together has been a lot of work. Um, it's part of the reason why we've needed to raise a fair amount of money. Like that stuff, again, comes with a lot of compliance and regulatory work. Um, and so, you know, we think that the value proposition to users is that this stuff sort of cross pollinates because it cross pollinates in your life as well, right? Like if you have a child, you don't want to like separately say, okay, how does that affect my taxes? And then like separately go to your health insurance company yeah. and say, okay, I need to add a dependent now. And then like go to your in retirement account and say, hey, I want to put this child as a beneficiary on this account. Like that ends up like 
being a lot of overhead. And for us, when we have all that information in one place, when you make a single update, it sounds like super obvious, but when you make one update, it propagates across the platform, right? So you say, I have a dependent, right? We say, okay, great. That changes your tax withholding rate. Like, oh, would you like to add that person to your health insurance plan? Like, oh, we can like add that person as a beneficiary to your retirement account and do all that in one single spot. And so for the short term, we need to prove that people want that. Like that that's something that people will trust and invest in and give us their, their data and let us hold their money and like really give us a lot of trust. Um, and so I think that's the short term goal is to prove that the cross pollination and multiple product approach is something that people are looking for. The last 10 years or so has been a, a long cycle of disaggregation in fintech, right? Like all of these like micro apps that are like, we do saving roundups, but like, that's it. That's all <laughs> we do. Right. And that's fine. I think a lot of innovation came from that disaggregation, right? A lot of companies were able to try things in a small way, but we think now we're at the beginning of a cycle where everyone's getting to what you talked about earlier, where they're like, Ugh, separate accounts for this and like logging yeah. in and like, I have and like seven smart. of these apps on my phone for some reason. Totally. And then they don't share information with each other. Right. right. Why would they? And so you make an update, you like change your address, for example, you have to change your address in every single one of them. So we think that we're at the beginning of that cycle and that's what we need to prove for product market, product market fit. Um, for the longer term, sort of several years down the road, I think there are a couple things. Growth is not the only objective for us in the longer term. It is actually being able to reevaluate these financial products themselves and ask the question, like, are the building blocks of financial services the right things for the future workforce? Again, all of these products that we talk about, like retirement, for example, like where we are at with retirement as a country right now is an accident right? Yeah. Like it is a complete accident. It is not, it was not designed intentionally. It was that like there were pensions and then pensions got really expensive. And then someone found a loophole in the tax code called the 401k clause. And they were able to create this like tax benefited account that like allowed people to save for retirement. But we haven't really evaluated whether or not the 401k is even an appropriate retirement vehicle. That like sounds crazy to say because it's so common that people just like have a 401k from their employer. From your perspective, what, what might be like the biggest issue with it? So for us, we see the concept of retirement as an investment product is flawed. And the reason we believe that is that one, it's completely untested. Two, it's never worked in any society anywhere around the world. And three, like we, we did it in a very haphazard way where there was not universal coverage of these investment accounts. And the reason why retirement shouldn't be an investment account is that A, nobody knows how long they're going to live. Like you don't know. I mean, maybe if your doctor tells you you have a couple months left, but like other than that, like yeah. most of us are like, we have no idea how long we're going to live. And the other thing is that you don't know how much your old age is going to cost. You don't know what your health status is going to be. Like maybe you'll be really healthy and just like drop dead at 90. Or maybe you'll be really sick starting at like 65. And it's really hard to like guess, right? Because statistically, like you don't actually know what you as an individual are going to encounter. So an investment product, the problem is like one, you're, you're facing market volatility, which is not necessarily the end of the world because ultimately we've seen upward trends for the last, you know, forever. But like you're facing market volatility and you have these huge unknowns in terms of how much money you're going to need. So what we see as like a better option, just as an example, is that retirement should actually be a blended product that unites investment and insurance. So maybe you save up a certain amount of money that, that pays you out until you're 85. And then at 85, you get longevity insurance. The only retirement products that have worked in a global system 
are ones that are universal and that have guaranteed coverage, right? It's pensions. It's like a socialist system where the government provides like payout to every person over a certain age. Those are the only systems that work in terms of making sure that your, your senior population is actually covered. Right. Yeah. Other than and, that, and those you get have mass their own poverty. problems. <laughs> totally for sure. Yeah. But there's like, but there's a lot of like, I'm not saying that we should just like have the government pay for everyone's retirement or raise social security to like $5,000 a month. But I think that like, that's an important point is that like the, the guarantee is really important on the fund. And so maybe it's an insurance product and it's not just something that you save up to and then spend down from because of all that unknown, you end up with having a lot of like older people who are very, very vulnerable. And while for most of us who are in our twenties and thirties, that sounds like very far off people in their forties and fifties know that like that's their parents right? Yeah. And you start to see it happening and it, it comes very close to home once you think about it as like, well, what happens if my parents just like ran out of money? Um, so we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Anyway, all of this is to bring us back to the idea that Catch is really looking at the, the building blocks of financial services and saying, how do we put them together in new ways that actually serve the way our society exists right now, rather than how it was like 50 or 100 years ago. Yeah. And, and so what is your, like the biggest hurdle for you right now? Is it um, getting people who might not be doing any kind of uh, personal finance um, mm -hmm. is it like is, is it someone who just completely isn't like involved in the space uh, or is it someone who might be you know doing um, this through many different accounts and you're trying to like get them to to essentially bring everything to to catch which which of those two like customer personas is is more challenging and, and the one that you're going after more right now so the one we're going after more right now is the person who's like very organized and on top of their finances and has a system, whether it's other apps or it's Excel or it's whatever it might be. That's a much easier uh, value proposition to offer. It's like, hey, you, you do all these things yeah. and we make it way easier, right? Again, that's that convenience piece, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a really easy sell. Um, that's where we get a ton of word of mouth. That's where we get a ton. Like, that's very easy. I think that's that's great, but I think what we would all sort of intuitively know is that that segment of the population is uh, smaller than the other segment, which is people who are like, oh, I don't, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. I don't really know what I need. Uh, yeah, I guess I have taxes on this freelance income, but like maybe I'll pay it in a year. And like that, that persona I think is, is much yeah. more widespread uh, because, because most of us don't want to spend our time thinking about this stuff, right? Like we're like, this is unpleasant and hard. Um, and so I think that, that we are breaking through, but I think that to tell people that it's convenient when their current system is doing nothing um, is, a, is a little bit of a yeah. challenging message. So it's like, it's helping people, it's finding the point where people actually feel the pain. And so for freelancers and 1099s in particular, it's often around taxes, right? Like, yes, they know they should be saving for retirement, but like just telling them you should be saving for retirement is something they've been hearing from their parents their entire career, right? But taxes is something that like a lot of people will file their taxes and they'll just be like, oh my gosh, I was way off. They like do some mental math throughout the year and they're like, I think I'm fine. And then they get to tax day and they just don't have the money. So there are a lot of tools out there right now that help you like calculate what your deductions could be. And they're helpful. But again, those are software tools. I don't really consider those fintech tools because it's just like calculating stuff, right? For us, the fintech key here is to be able to actually make sure that individuals have the money ready. 
right? So you need to know what your deductions are, sure, but there's a, a hundred great tools that help you do that. But to actually have the money in the account so that when you need to go pay your taxes, you're yeah. not like, wow, I have to take out a loan or I have to go work <laughs> twice as hard for the next six months. Like, I think that's, that's sort of where we see the opportunity to, to find a way to get that segment on board. Um, I think health insurance is going to be another way to do that. Open enrollment is November 1st to December 15th. And so for people who have to use the individual marketplace, we offer them a way to enroll in health insurance directly through our platform. So obviously a lot of people know they have to get health insurance and they do it during that period. That's another sort of wedge for us to, to get in the door. Yeah. And, and it all goes back to like the convenience factor and just having mm -hmm. everything there. It's one thing to let someone know what they need to do, but it's another thing to actively do the um, stuff. Exactly. So we actually, like it's, we have it, a neon sign in our office. You know how all the startups have neon signs? Our yeah. neon sign says, do the stuff. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so, I mean, would, would like an app like, uh, so would catch if say someone's making a thousand dollars a week and they need to save, you know, 200 or 250 for taxes, would that automatically like be put into like a separate account as long as they indicate it or will they still have to actually put that money in there? Yeah. Great question. So, um, it's a fine line to walk between automation and like taking people's money when yeah. they don't want you to, right? Like <laughs> you have to give people enough control over their money and not take it. But we also want to, as much as possible, automate the process. So the way that it works right now, um, and I think this is sort of another one of those like key insights for us is that this population is not paid in a consistent fashion, right? They don't earn the same amount of money on a regular time frame. That's sort of one That's of the things point. that defines the category. So what you have to do is you have to make sure that you're tied to the paycheck itself, right? So we connect with a user's bank account, use Plaid, Plaid's awesome, great FinTech company. Um, but that allows us to see whenever someone gets paid. So whether or not you're getting like, you know, let's say you're a classic freelancer and you close a big project and you get $25,000 and then you like don't get paid for two or three months. Mm -hmm. um, or you're someone who's working on a gig platform and you're getting paid every couple days but it's like small dollar, right? And so what we do is we notify the user and say, hey, it looks like you got paid. Do you wanna set aside according to your plan? And so they've already set up their plan, right? They say, I wanna set aside 20% for taxes, 5% for retirement, 3% for time off, right? So we just send them a notification and say, do you wanna set aside according to your plan? And they say yes. And then we move the money. We move the retirement money to an IRA. We move the taxes and time off money into liquid savings. And those accounts sort of separate it. It's really replicating what the W-2 experience is. Like you as a W-2, like that stuff is taken out of your paycheck, right? It's already done. Your health insurance premiums, your 401k, your taxes, all that stuff's already gone by the time you get your check. So we're just trying to make it easier for people with volatile income to do that however they get paid. So that's a great point. I, I, I didn't necessarily even think about like, or process that, yeah, some weeks you might get paid a lot, some, mm -hmm. some not at all. And, and it's difficult to then, um, I'm guessing from like a like a mindset perspective, if like you've went you know a couple months without making any money, and now you get like all this cash, uh, it's difficult to like start putting that aside and, and remembering that oh now I have to like pay right. tax on it. Um, right. And I think and I think unless people like actually go through that experience, um, it's it's not top of mind at all. But uh, like we mentioned earlier, you know this is kind of what the economy is is moving towards for better or for worse um you know more freedom but with more freedom also comes more uh like responsibility on your own shoulders to like manage your your finances yourself so um yeah. definitely a lot of trade-offs going on but but really um it's it's gonna be interesting to see like how this all plays out 
Yeah. And as we, as we talk about sort of our future roadmap, there are ways for us that we're sort of working on getting that automation even better because at the end of the day, you still do have to like say yes to move money. We've made it a fairly light action, but it's not nothing. Right. Um, and so what a couple of the things we're, we're rolling out this fall, one, something called always never income, where you can sort of assign categories of things and say, anytime I get this money, it's always income. So just like act on it the way I want you to act on it on my behalf. That's going to be huge, right? Like people, a lot of times, especially on gig platforms, they are earning like many, many, many checks from the same place. And to be able to like, just say, okay, we're doing that without you having to act is really powerful. Um, and then the other feature that we've, we've talked a lot about is, is a direct deposit pass through. Um, and so one of the things we're looking at is how do we make our payments rails faster so that people can still get their paycheck in time? Obviously, like we, we're not doing this right now. We, we have the capability. We don't do it right now because we don't want to make people wait an extra three days because we use ACH. Um, but moving to same day ACH, moving to other payment rails may allow us to actually like just be the direct deposit password through. So again, like you as a W2, all that money comes out before it hits your bank account. That's the ultimate goal right? Is to make sure that like, yeah. you don't have to think about like, oh, did I accidentally spend my taxes money? Um, but obviously there are some concerns and some people would rather like have more autonomy over the money. So we want yeah. to give them that, that flexibility. And, and it really, it, yeah, I feel like it goes down to the individual. Like for, for totally. some people, you rather just have everything up front and pay later and you're totally mm -hmm. comfortable with, with managing that process. But which is one of the cool things, because if you're if you're a W two, you don't have that option. Right. So with with something like like catch, you can essentially be treated as a W two, but also have the freedom to to not have it that way. So that's that's a really cool point. Um, because you know it kind of sucks when you think about it. Like you get your taxes withheld, and then a year later you, <laughs> you, you get, get a like, a, like a check. Um, meanwhile, that money could have been you know like growing totally. somewhere else. So it's uh, it, I don't know. There's there's so much within this personal finance, um, like ecosystem that, that just needs to be changed and, and mm -hmm. made a lot more efficient. Uh, and it's, it's great to see, you know, you starting to like tackle at least, you know, a, 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 a major section of that. Um, and, and one other thing that I think, you know, I definitely want to talk about is, you know, your experience, uh, as a, as a female fint fintech founder. So similar to finance, you know, maybe not as bad as like traditional finance, but this is a like largely like male dominated sector. Um, what have you learned kind of from, from your career in this and then, and then actually launching your own startup that you can share with, you know, uh, potential FinTech, um, employees who are women or, or like founders, um, that they can, you know, use in their own careers to have more success in this industry. Yeah. Well, I think this is a really important conversation, not just for women in FinTech, but for people in FinTech. I think it's really important that we're all thinking about diversity. And again, I, I am a white woman. Like I, there is a set of privilege that I have as well. And I think that talking about diversity is really important for everyone, not just the people who are part of that underrepresented minority. So um, what, I, what I've said before, and, and I will continue to say is that I, am, I feel very fortunate and that I've never experienced explicit discrimination in any way that I could, that I could measure, right? I, I don't have examples of things that like, oh, this horrible thing happened to me, I think. And, and I'm lucky, I know other people have had those stories, but for me, I, I feel like I've been very respected. I feel like everyone I've interacted with as either a partner or you know, founders, employees, um, venture capitalists, everyone has been respectful and thoughtful. And I, you know, I feel as though there's no like blatant, like, oh, you're a woman, you can't do this, which is good. But at the end, like, that's also kind of a low bar. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, great, you haven't experienced like explicit discrimination. That's, that's a pretty low bar. But I, I do think that there is still an element of 
unintentional bias. And I think we, we all have it in different ways. And I think it's one of those things where sometimes you can feel like the, the unintentional side where someone will sort of ask to speak to my co-founder at a time where it's like really not necessary or not like a, a relevant time for that. It happens fairly infrequently. And I, I really don't believe there's malicious intent behind it. But I think it's just something that, again, having this conversation is really important because people need to be aware of it. You need to be thinking about it. And I think that that sort of permeates through to anyone who wants to work in the industry to be extra thoughtful about how you're hiring and who you're hiring. I, I saw something on LinkedIn the other day that was just like, it just made me roll my eyes where it was a tech company that was hiring engineers. And it was a picture of two like really, really strong dudes like lifting weights. And it was like, we do like powerful stuff here. Like, I, I don't even know what the main point of it was, but it was like, we're hiring. And I was like, that, like, I get it. You're trying to be like fun. And like, you're trying to like show that you have like a bit of a sense of humor, but like that image is really not appealing to women. Like, it's like, I don't, I don't want to go work at a place that's like, laughing about being broy, you know, like it's just like not fun. So just everything is like probably not appealing to most engineers anyway. Also, <laughs> it's probably true too. I wonder how well it worked for them, but, but maybe they're trying to self-select for a very specific audience. But I think that like just being thoughtful about those things, like one of the tips that has always stuck with me, it's super small and it's really powerful in terms of anyone who's hiring and wants to think about how to get more women at their company or you know, on their team or with partners or things like that, is when you're posting a job description, um, a lot of times people will write them in the language that's like, you like your qualifications, right? You must have these things. And it like lists eight or 10 things from degree to number of years of experience to like skills, um, some soft, some technical, right? Whatever it might be. And what the data shows is that men will often look at a list like that. And if they think that they check like roughly half, they might apply for a job, right? They'll be like, yeah, I can do most of those things. So I'll apply. Right. And women have a very different approach where a lot of times they'll see that list and they'll be like, I only have nine out of 10. So this is clearly like, they'll never hire me. And so that you can say that like, Oh, women should just change their mindset on that. But this is just like the way the world is. And so if you're looking for diversity, something that you can do is like structure your job application or your, um, your job description to say something along the lines of like, we're looking for people who have many of the following. Right. And like on all, on our job descriptions right now, we even have like a little paragraph at the bottom that's like, hey, Catch is doing some really innovative things. And it's probable that you don't have exactly this experience. And that's okay. Like we're looking for people who are problem solvers and, you know, eager to learn and like stuff like that. And you can sort of like make it a little bit softer in terms of what your like hardline requirements are. Um, and I think that's a really powerful way to just like encourage people to apply because a lot of times people will tell you it's a pipeline problem. And so we need to get women applying for more of these jobs. I think that women are absolutely qualified to work in fintech. Um, and, and part of it is just like building a culture around thinking about that from everything you do from the initial job description through the interview process, through hiring and onboarding and then sort, you know, the entire employment spectrum of what someone does while they work with you. Um, and that's a really good way for us to like change conversation and start to like address some of these issues around diversity. Awesome. So, I mean, there, there's a roadmap right there for everyone who's listening, <laughs> might be running their own startup. Uh, and, and personally, I really um, don't like those like mandatory qualifications where it's like three to seven years. It's like, what if you have like two and a half? You right. know what I mean? I, I, I just, I don't know. I, it really irks me. And, and what I've started noticing, you know, and companies that I'm seeing like do the stuff that's like, we, you know, design your own role or, mm -hmm. um, you know, write us a message anyway, just like that yeah. kind of stuff just, just goes to show that they actually 
Um, and I feel like for a startup, it's it's kind of weird because you're working on a startup, especially an early one, because you want uh, more of a fluid environment where you have like more ways to, to impact the company and, and do more and, and interact with, you know, multidisciplinary uh, team members and everything like that. And then having that rigid kind of structure in there in the right in the beginning of the process is a very strange and a bit off putting. Yeah, um, I think totally. it just I mean, really fit with the with the model. And even as like, as our society changes more towards automation in the workplace, it's something that like, we are looking for people who are flexible and adaptable and can change. And like, that's a much more important qualification than the fact that you have exactly five years of experience, right? Because at the same time, that also can lead to age discrimination. What if you found someone who's like career switch or like, you know, like, and they have like 10 plus years, doesn't mean they can't do the job. So I understand where it comes from. It's sort of trying to level set, but but I do think exactly what you're saying is like as the workforce changes and we start to see more and more things that are that are outsourced and that are automated, um, we have to think about like what are those really human qualities we're looking for and how do we bring in people who are who are fit for that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think that's kind of a great way to to kind of like end this uh, and, and wrap it up. And I want to hand it back to you, Kristen. Tell everyone where they can find Catch. Um, I know you guys have a, a mobile app right now. It's on iOS, right? And Android. We launched Android, and Android? two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very cool. iOS awesome. and so. Android. Um, <laughs> Catch.co. Uh, you can sign up on the web. Everything is uh, is mobile native as well. Um, yeah, I mean, if you have questions, I, I am all over Twitter. First, last name. I'm also Kristen at Catch.co. K-R-I-S-T-E-N at catch.co. Um, this is a really important topic and we, we want to be talking about it with other founders and other um, people who are interested in startups or want to work at startups. And like you said, we're hiring. So absolutely would welcome anyone to reach out. Great. So everyone out there, if you're interested, uh, check out the app, reach out to Kristen or check out the available positions there. Um, It'll be really interesting to see what happens. I'm excited to see like new features coming out. I know a bunch of them are mm-hmm. saying like coming soon. So um, I'll be on the lookout for that. Uh, thank you so much, Kristen, for, for doing this. It was really great to, to reconnect and, and talk to you. Great. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, go rate and subscribe to the podcast. Even share it with your friends if you found the lessons valuable. We do the show every week, so stay tuned for more episodes. And till next time.